0: Welcome back to the Make Me Smarter on IHR podcast, your regular mini-dose of all things related to the international health regulations. I'm your host, Dr. Katrina Lita, from the Learning Solutions and Training Unit in the Country Readiness Strengthening Department under the WHO Health Emergencies Program. For our second episode, we're going to continue the conversation we started in Episode 1 about the 2019 study on the experiences of national IHR focal points and carrying out their functions under the IHR. In the previous episode, we talked about the context, main findings, and recommendations of the study. Today, we'll be focusing more on the expert insights our two resource persons gained as a result of conducting the study. Dr. Kumanan Wilson from the Ottawa Hospital and Professor Sam Hallaby from Georgetown University. Welcome back to the podcast, Kumanan and Sam. Your study was conducted just before the COVID-19 pandemic. So far, did any of the barriers identified by your analysis play a role in the global response to the pandemic?
1: Sam would likely be more qualified to speak to this, but I'll I'll take my first stab. I, I think this issue, the lingering concerns about how the WHO may use information is an important barrier. I think what we've learned from, unfortunately, from COVID-19 is this fundamental concept of the importance of surveillance and early notification so that we can prepare. uh, And any delays, uh, whether they are due to lingering concerns or whether they're due to need to get intersectoral approval, can have a substantial impact on the world's ability to respond to these threats. And there were some concerns highlighted at the outset that some states parties may have not reported as quickly as they could. Now, this could be because there is a natural period of ascertaining what the level of the threat is, but there are other issues around, we don't want to report an uncertain event if it could have a negative impact on, on our country. And also there is the issue of having to get intersector approval and, and collecting information from other uh, other sectors. So, So I think those issues again recurred. Um, it, it's understandable. Uh, it's an ongoing issue uh, that's always been a challenge, and the IHR has, has made great strides in addressing that. But uh, I, I do think it did uh, cause some challenges early on with COVID nineteen.
2: Yeah, I you know I think that's exactly right. I would you know I would add um, just a little bit of a little bit of detail in that the structure of the NFP of the most important reporting state, um, you know, we still don't know precisely the chronology and everything, but for sure um, there's evidence to suggest that officials at the provincial or even the municipal level were not sure what to do with the information with respect to the national reporting obligations. So it was consistent with one of the findings of the study. Um, It'll be something that it, you know, is sort of, you know, there is a lot of um, robust conversation about what might be done with respect to IHR amendment or improvement. Um, and for sure, I, I think that that conversation about sort of how NFPs are empowered or independent um, is, should be a feature.
0: I'm reflecting on what you said about intersectorality. As you know, the IHR is less known outside of the NFP. Did you have an inkling from your interviews that members of the NFB should extend beyond the Ministry of Health?
2: Um, So that, I mean, as I understand the question, the answer is yes. Um, So there were countries, so in the study and in in this conversation, we aren't divulging um, the identities of the countries that were interviewed separately, right, from the secondary literature, right? For example, El Salvador and, and the United States have national focal points that combine national bureaucracies. um, And there are advantages to that for the reasons that you um, articulate, right? So if you have a single convening um, where it is the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Defense, um, that is a way to reduce the delays. Um, I don't know how about the capacity of an international instrument to reach to that extent into sort of sovereign decisions on bureaucratic structure. Um, but I think that the question is exactly right, that it would improve the time of reporting and the coordination for sure.
1: Yeah, I'd like to echo those comments uh, with higher income countries, as I mentioned, there were often you know large uh, groups of individuals involved in, in fulfilling these functions. and They had the resources to dedicate to that. In some of the LMICs, uh, there may be a single individual, and, and, and this would be a major challenge and, uh, for them if they had to, to gather all of this information across several government sectors. And what was mentioned in, in some of the interviews was that the value of best practices or modules or learnings uh, that could be shared across them that other people in their situation have had to deal with the same type of issues that are very specific, Uh, so so, a wealth, uh, higher income country couldn't really uh, understand those challenges to the same degree and and there there could be value in in having sort of shared learnings in that regard.
0: Very interesting. Focusing on your last point, can you think of any other additional support NFPs would need from governments and WHO to fulfill their functions under the IHR?
1: I think that what we found most interesting from our interviews was the value of peer-to-peer communication. This is an exceptionally dynamic area. The world we live in now is not the world that approved the IHR. You know, the digital transformations occurred. Uh, There there are limitations to sort of some of the Annex One requirements that need to be updated to acknowledge this reality. Um, this needs to be agile and and having that peer to peer type of relationships facilitated, and to be allow for context specific responses. That I think is going to be critical as we re envision the IHR for the post COVID world or a pandemic treaty, whatever it may be.
0: Sam, would you like to share if you have any other thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. I mean, I you know I think one of the one of the commitments that can be made in an international agreement is to um, commit to the sufficient resourcing of national focal points. Um, I think Dr. Wilson's point is a, is a really important one, which is, you know, there needs to be something like a cohort approach to those NFPs. Um, if you can imagine like a Slack channel for the world's um, NFPs or a regionally based Slack channel, Clearly, there are some governments that are going to hesitate um, at that kind of openness, but I think that if that is the kind of uh, world in which information will be readily transmitted and, and response will be um, facilitated.
0: Excellent points. Thank you very much. It's great to hear both of you talk about the value of a more informal kind of peer-to-peer communication, because this is exactly what we want to do. Under the umbrella of WHO, it can be really difficult to have something a bit more informal in terms of peer-to-peer collaboration. We're trying to do the best that we can. In fact, we've started and have had some modest successes with the NFP Knowledge Networks, but the traction is not yet there. Regardless, it's heartening to hear that, and we hope that this podcast is one step towards reaching this goal. Going back to what you've mentioned about different contexts and situations, When you were conducting the interviews, and without mentioning any names, did you notice any significant differences in the responses of those coming from federated states, small island nations, or LMICs?
1: There were certain regions we had more challenge getting uh, responses from, and and, that might reflect... uh, some anxiety about these type of uh projects um or it could have just it i think largely did reflect lack of availability because as mentioned if it's a single individual they're extremely busy uh we did find sometimes a bit of differentness in openness in discussing some of these issues that uh may have not asked of the issue uh in certain areas Then it was a uh, you know, I don't want to say where or when, but uh, it would be sort of contradictory to what you might expect um, in, in some of our uh, interviews, uh, pe- areas where you thought they might be a bit more open, they were actually a bit more guarded and vice versa. So, um, you know, I, I can't otherwise delve too much deeper into the the, the regional uh, differences. Um, Sam, I don't know if you have any further insights on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do- There's a tremendous amount of nuance and detail in the backgrounds of the reporting countries. So, you know, sort of countries that had recently dealt with a reportable significant event um, clearly reflected a kind of preparedness um, and uh, willingness to engage um, versus those that had never um, reported and, and actually doubted their ability to report very low resource countries where the NFP may in fact be a, a kind of a shared cell phone um, sort of reported very differently than um, very wealthy reporting countries with extensive bureaucracies. Um, so I, d- I don't know if that is entirely helpful only to suggest that you were exactly right, that there's a tremendous amount of diversity in how NFPs are structured based on a number of factors, including a bit, uh, sort of access to resources, um, but also sort of recent experience with an IHR reporting event. Um, so there's, well, I mean, from my perspective, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done um, and understanding more, um, but it, you are certainly correct that uh, those additional contextual details matter for sure.
0: Thank you very much for providing those insights. Pivoting now to the results of the recent IHR Review Committee on COVID-19, under the IHR, the NFP has a key functionality role as the official hub of communication between governments and WHO and within each country. However, while NFPs are responsible for the transmission and collation of urgent public health information, the recent IHR Review Committee on COVID-19 found that the overall responsibility of implementing the IHR with the government including the requirements under articles 4 to 12. Do you agree with this finding?
2: Yeah that's 100% correct and you know again to this sort of so Dr. Wilson has studied this issue um, in even more depth than I have uh, but so there is a, the possibility of, of issuing essentially reservations under the IHR um, for countries that have you know uh, constitutionally federal systems or systems that provide a great deal of deference to local decision makers. Um, the opportunity for those kinds of reservations need to be rethought um, because there have been significant problems with local decision makers either not knowing um, or being fearful Um, or incorrectly transmitting um, information to national decision makers, which are the responsible agents under the IHR. So on the one hand, the responsibility is with governments, but legally the channels for circumvention are embedded within the instrument um, and they they need to be revisited.
1: Yeah, I think this is a a fundamental challenge, not just to the IHR, but to any international agreement where the agreement is signed or approved of by a, a national entity specific to that area uh, and then in order for it to be effectively executed it does require a collaboration vertically and horizontally so you know to Sam's point we, we have had challenges with w- in federal systems of government where there isn't some su- supremacy clause or constitutional power that can mandate uh, uh, functions that are necessary for the execution of the IHR. Uh, similarly, to the point that was made uh, in, in in the document you referred to, you know, if the NFP is the focus of the IHR and the responsibilities are outside the NFP, it becomes really hard to hold them accountable for the functions of parallel uh, organizations. Uh, you know, central to all of this is the issue of state sovereignty. And the degree to which uh, an inter- signing an international agreement can infringe on state sovereignty, um, you know, presumably at the horizontal government level, that should be addressable because uh, that level of government has signed the agreement. But when you're looking at vertical governments and, and, and subnational governments that are not bound uh, by the agreement, it becomes more problematic.
0: I'd now like to ask whether you see a sort of contradiction in that on the one hand, According to Article 4, the NFPs are the official hub of communication responsible for carrying out reporting as required under the IHR. But on the other hand, the eventual responsibility and accountability for whether to report an event and to share information needed for its risk assessment with WHO is not necessarily with the NFP. How do you think this should be resolved?
1: So, so I, I think for high-income countries, in, it, it is their responsibility to organize their systems of government and, and such to, to ensure that the NFPs have the support they need. Um, you know, they are adequately resourced. They have had a sufficient time with the uh, agreement to ensure that occurs, uh, at least at a horizontal level. I do am sympathetic to the situation in LMICs where, where that just simply may not be the case and they have other priorities, uh, They have other endemic diseases that they're always uh, dealing with. and, uh, and it, it just this may not be a sufficiently high priority within those countries. So to Sam's point, you know, in those circumstances, I think, there is an importance of the international community and, and to support those countries as much as possible in in addressing this challenge
2: yeah so structurally, you know there are two kind of aspects of article four compliance um or deficiencies in Article 4 compliance. One is the inability to report um, as the instrument requires. And the other is the unwillingness to report as the instrument requires. Um, Both of those can be addressed through international mechanisms, right? So with respect to the inability, um, that's just straightforward financial support. um, And that can be facilitated by WHO. WHO clearly on its own doesn't have the resources to do that, um, but it could be arranged through WHO. With respect to unwillingness, there was one quote from one NFP that said, all public health emergencies are political. Um, So there could be an international commitment to protect against the significant financial fallout that can ensue um, from candid and robust reporting. Um, I don't know if those are politically feasible outcomes, um, but Helga, I think that you're exactly right, that it is an internal tension um, in the Article 4 mechanism but it is one that can be addressed um, through international coordination.
1: Yeah, and, and obviously this does not need to be said, but COVID-19 has illustrated the consequences of not addressing these issues. Uh, the human cost is, is enormous. Uh, I think in 2021, the pandemic cost uh, 10 trillion, just in, in, in uh, sorry, in 2020, it, it cost the world 10 trillion. So this is an easy win from a cost benefit analysis. Uh, The devotion of some resources comparatively minimal to to these issues um, will have huge benefits. Uh, I also like to uh, emphasize that uh, this is our sixth major sort of global outbreak since 2020. Um, We've had SARS, we had H1N1, we've had Ebola, we had Zika, we had yellow fever in Africa. Uh, These are frequent occurrences Uh, investing in preparation uh, for these events is absolutely easily worth it and any resource that can be provided will benefit every country in the world.
0: All very excellent points. The Review Committee also found that there's been too much emphasis on the NFB as if the NFB should resolve all IHR-related issues. Instead, it is the competent authority in each country that is responsible for IHR implementation. According to Article 4.1, the IHR Review Committee found that the competent authority needs to be more recognized and held to account for the functionality of the NFP and the delivery of other IHR obligations. In this context, the committee suggested that WHO should develop an accountability framework for the authorities responsible for implementing the IHR. In addition, WHO should report to the governing bodies the level of countries' compliance as an incentive for governments to fulfill their IHR obligations. So far, there is no mechanism to monitor compliance with the timelines for information sharing as required under Article 6 to 10. What do you think about these ideas?
1: Let me take a first stab, but this is a legal question, so Sam would have far more expertise than myself. the question is what is the competent authority? Is it the sovereign of the state? Is it the minister in charge of the bureaucracy? Uh, just some of my experience uh, working in this area uh, at a domestic level is there's so much turnover uh, as uh, in bureaucracies, uh, in ministers, uh, even at the, at the, the level of the, the leadership. Having a single individual or group like a CDC or a Public Health Agency of Canada, having ongoing responsibility brings corporate memory and value. Uh, And I think for something like the IHR, which can be fairly technical, there is real value in maintaining that. I appreciate the fact that legally or as per the IHR, the responsibility may not specifically lay there, but having a minister or a deputy minister um, who doesn't really have any familiarity with the document uh, suddenly thrust into a global crisis, um, having to try to resolve some of these issues and being accountable. I mean, ultimately I think they would just defer to the, the NFP anyway, um, but that, that's sort of just my general observations.
2: Yeah, I mean, as I heard the question, it sounds like it has sort of significant overlap with the JEE exercise and SPAR. Um, there is currently, an, ex, you know, sort of an extensive effort to review the adequacy of the measures and transparency through those mechanisms. So far as I know, nobody has established a correlation between high JEE scores, which include things like, um, you know, internal infrastructure for communication um, and sort of uh, response to COVID-19 or success of response to COVID-19. So I think it is an important question to ask. I think we need to first sort of really answer why our current mechanisms for transparency and measurement seem to fail um, before we start building a new transparency model that I think would be informed by the, the same evidence that, I mean, I, I'll speak a, like a little bit sweeping here, didn't seem to work. Um, so I, I do think that that is important. I think we need to really think about what good evidence-based transparency would look like.
0: Thank you for raising those important questions. There does certainly seem to be a disconnect looking at Article 4, between the authority of NFPs and the accountability of responsible or competent authorities. And we have never collected contact details of the competent authorities within each country.
1: Yeah, I, you know, as a non-legal person, I look at that and I, I don't know what they mean by competent authority. So I do agree that they would be worthwhile defining that. Uh, and it seems not only worthwhile, it's absolutely critical. Um, if this, if accountability is going to be emphasized with respect to the IHR.
2: I agree with you hundred percent, but I will say sort of, you can't look at article four alone either, right? So the World Health Organization's authority to look at quote unquote, other reports, um, textually it must do so with in consultation with the, the competent authorities, right? The state party. Um, so the the difference between the IHR's delegation of responsibility to NFPs and its delegation of authority to act is is mixed and blended, and um, even within the other textual provisions of the instrument. Um, I, but I certainly agree with you that the idea of collecting information on who the competent authority is, um, as as one step toward accountability, is a is, is a very good idea. I I I'd probably like you. I I wonder how much willingness there would be to make that kind of commitment from the state's parties.
0: Another recommendation provides that WHO should monitor and document countries' compliance with their IHR requirements for information sharing and verification requests and to report its findings in WHO's annual report to the World Health Assembly on IHR implementation. Looking at this recommendation, which has not been officially endorsed yet by the Assembly, so it has no legal weight yet, from your perspective, which is the authority to be held to account for complying with the obligations of state parties to notify events that are notifiable according to Annex 2 within 24 hours, to share the information with WHO following the notification, to respond to WHO's verification request within 24 hours, provide the necessary information, and so on, All of these obligations put on the shoulders of the NFP who, looking at Article 4, is just responsible for carrying out the communication aspect and not to decide, not necessarily responsible for carrying out a notification assessment or decide what information is to be shared with WHO.
1: My sense is it's better to not disaggregate those responsibilities. Um, There's a lot of technical knowledge that's required for this. Uh, You know, one of the one of the clear messages from our interviews was you know we really care about the IHR and have studied it a lot and a lot of people have never heard of this document uh, and and if that responsibilities fall to groups that have never heard of the IHR it does become problematic. The NFP is often the one with the deep knowledge of all issues IHR and even that we found in MLMICs can be a challenge and when there's turnover there has to be relearning. So In theory, and as it's written, I I understand what the IHR is saying, that the NFP isn't responsible, but practically it makes sense in my mind that that there's a lot of knowledge that's required to execute these functions. uh, And it's only increasingly getting more technically challenging as the world is confronting these new and emerging challenges. Uh, I, I think, practically speaking, it it needs to be the NFP or the NFP, the entity that houses the NFP that needs to really take ownership of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, as I understand your question, the answer is no, under the current instrument. Um, You cannot expect the national focal point um, to be held accountable um, by the World Health Organization with the World Health um, assembly, those obligations need to be more firmly tied, um, to the politically responsible agents in the state party. Um, that's very easily stated, um, and not very easily accomplished. And I will tell you what your question raises to me is this question of dispute resolution in the IHR, which is extraordinarily, um, deferential um, to state party conduct, Um, sort of, the you know, the World Health Organization is under an obligation to review its own measures and decision making after each declaration of a public health emergency. There actually isn't a mechanism for one state party, for example, to meaningfully allege that another state party um, has fallen short of its communication obligations. Um, Again, that's a very politically sensitive and diplomatically sensitive and difficult issue. But I think it does go to the heart of what you're asking.
0: All right, thank you both for sharing your thoughts on this complex and important issue. Now, going back to your original study, at this point, I'd like to ask, what are your future plans or are there any further plans now that the study has been conducted and the findings published?
1: I think the logical next step for us is to see how the findings did relate to the the response to COVID-19. I think we were in a very unique position, thanks to the prescience of some individuals in the WHO to have uh, supported a study in advance of what uh, ultimately ensued. And it gives us a very unique lens to say, this is where the world was prior to this catastrophic event what was right, what wasn't right. Uh, And I think we can work with, we would be happy to work with uh, the WHO and and other international authorities to bring this knowledge forward. Uh, In retrospect, you're going to see a colored view of how people were prepared. We saw at the time what they were thinking.
2: That's exactly right. To use the evidence that we um, induced, which I mean, I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that that kind of study can only be done with um, WHO's assistance and, and facilitation. Um, and, and so it is looking to sort of make those findings as useful as possible as the, you know, the whole world and the special session in November for sure um, sort of contemplates what we knew and what level of detail I think this study, you know, serendipitously, but But I think Kuminan's right, sort of with really prescient and and careful planning at WHO, um, that we really have a snapshot on the eve of the pandemic, what the structure and function of the NFPs looked like. Um, So I think that's exactly right. We want to make it as useful as possible. Um, I would even say more specifically to this special session. because that is where the, the meaningful deliberations about what pandemic prevention and response look like you know, for the next three to five years and probably thereafter.
0: Very timely indeed. Before we wrap up, would you like to make a concluding statement?
2: Yeah, I, I think
1: it's more evident than ever how important the work that's occurring at the WHO and the, the international agreements are. Uh, I have, already stated uh, the enormous human cost. I believe in the US now, soon the deaths toll from uh, COVID-19 is going to exceed the 1918 pandemic flu. Uh, this is a, you know, a terrible situation, but the IHR is also just not a, it's not just a health uh, document, it's an economic document as we know, uh, and the economic consequences and the economic harm uh, have been enormous as well. The investment we put into this beforehand is never been more in doubt that, or never been less doubt about its value. Uh, When we look at the amount of investment we put into other areas of security, they dwarf what we put into public health. And, And a lot of these arguments that we have in public health about resourcing or competitive needs, you know, those aren't the right arguments to be having, they all should be supported. And by supporting them, you know, avoiding trillion dollar public health emergencies is easily in the best interest of everybody. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing here, the national focal points need to be supported. They need to be supported by their own countries for their own benefit of those countries. They need to be supported globally. We need to ensure that they are empowered both through their legislation and governance authorities, but also through reciprocal responses by the the WHO and the international community. And we're we're seeing challenges with that with immunization. You know, if for LMIC, if if they do in response to fulfilling their function are provided with the necessary capacity to respond to the public health stress within their own jurisdiction, they are thus empowered to be able to better execute their functions. So, you know, I, I think, we we need to look at this differently. I know that's happening. Uh, I think less as a public health issue, but more as a global health security issue.
0: Thank you, Kumaran. Sam, any concluding remarks?
2: Yeah, I think Dr. Wilson did a really um, eloquent job of articulating the most important um, sort of conclusions. Um, I will just add two um, sort of reflections. The first is, you know, a tremendous amount of gratitude is due to the World Health Organization um, for um, sort of sponsoring this study, right? I I think it took a risk that the findings could end up being embarrassing or sensitive. Um, And I think what it ultimately showed um, was that the World Health Organization does um, an extraordinarily praiseworthy job um, of trying to make the IHR Work um, so I'm I'm sort of very grateful to it and um, for making the study possible. Um, I would say second um, that what we came away with um, at the end of the day in our conversations with you know real breathing human beings was this tremendous commitment to global health security and to the functioning of the IHR. So it isn't that you have people who don't want to do their jobs well or who don't believe in good global health governance. It really is sort of where they are in the machinery of national infrastructures that can either facilitate or hinder that participation. So there's a, a lot of political goodwill um, towards effective international instruments to keep the world safe. Um, and I, I don't want anybody to lose sight of that.
1: Thanks, Dam. And, and I was remiss in, in I you know, I'd like to further emphasize our, our gratitude to the WHO for, for enabling this project uh, and not only supporting and sponsoring it, but as Sam said, we couldn't have done this without them facilitating the communications with the, the NFPs.
0: Excellent. And with that, many thanks again to Dr. Kumanan Wilson and Professor Sam Hallaby for joining us and sharing their findings and expert insights of the experiences of NFPs in carrying out their functions under the IHR.
2: Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: We've now come to the end of this two-part series, but we certainly had a full and fruitful discussion today. For more information, links to the published study will be available in the summary of this podcast episode, which will also contain the contact details of our resource persons in case you have any further questions. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Katrina Lidham for the Make Me Smarter on IHR podcast. See you next time.